Which goddess is 3.37 feet tall? 3.37? Yes. Do, um, do you want is it a us cubit? to say? Do you want to say? These is... jokes are just a quiz for Kelsey. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I have to have multiple jokes? Oh, I'm not. No, no, no. I, I have one. It's one fine. joke. Okay. Well, it's Demeter. And you know, you should also, you know, in in no. in COVID times, in COVID times, you should be standing Demeter's apart. Oh, <laughs> oh my Lord Jesus. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I should say, oh my Lord Asherah. Uh, there you go. Um, that's very funny. Uh, I love what Alana Asherah, actually, please. Yeah, right. I, reason, I knew as soon as I said it, I said it wrong. Every like couple of episodes, Alana will, like Lexi and I will say something. Alana will be like, oh, that's like really funny in this tone where I'm like, bitch, I'm always funny. Like, don't be surprised here. Like, I don't need this from you. Actually, also- Haley, you're quite hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. Wait, but how does that tie into social media? Okay. Yeah, what was- I didn't get to the question yet. The question is okay. because for, well, my dad doesn't listen to my podcast, but for my, my dad is the worst person to get Christmas or birthday presents. And his birthday is January 2nd. So like hop, skip, and a jump right after Christmas. But he loves board games. And his favorite board game is Code Names. So I have oh, printed yeah. out over 200 photos, like family photos of the like stupidest photos in the world. Uh, and I'm laminating everything. So it could be his own Code Names picture. Oh, so I'm replacing good. all of it. And my question is like, is there a photo from your childhood where you're like, what am I doing? But you have that second jolt of like, no, that actually makes complete sense when you're realizing like what you're doing in the photo. For me, it was crouching down in like the seventh grade next to a kangaroo, waking up a kangaroo, and then like <laughs> immediately after getting punched. I also had bangs, but it was Australia and humidity or whatever climate that just didn't work with my curly hair. So that was I mean, a setup so I could say that there's yes. a picture of me digging up a dinosaur, which famously on this podcast, I get mad when people think archaeologists dig up dinosaurs. As you but should. yes, there's a picture of me five years old digging up a dinosaur of not a real one. They don't, I don't think they let four-year-olds do that. But, but the best part is the goggles. I have goggles on that. to protect me from the dirt. That's except, very important. You don't want to get schmutz in your eyes. Yeah, but like, yeah, I've never <laughs> been on a dig where I wore goggles. Maybe you should. I think my goggles next season. Yeah, you know how much acne I'd get around my face if I wore goggles in the heat of Israel. Yeah, right. Who cares? No, go to Ireland. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. We're back recording new episodes, so here is Lexi. Lexi, what would you be the goddess of? Cross-stitching. And tricycles. Do you want to elaborate or just leave it at that? Well, right now I'm cross-stitching, and it's what I do with my hands when I'm talking, because I have mental problems, and the, <laughs> the only way I can focus on something is to do something else mindless. And the tricycle is because I have an adult tricycle, and anecdote, my dad took that tricycle into the bike repair shop to get the brake fixed, and he was too embarrassed to say it was his daughter's, so he said his wife bought it for his mother-in-law. And I really like that question, so I'm also going to ask Haley. Haley, what would you be the goddess of? 
think I'd be the goddess of eggs just because I'd control them and like not take it in because like I don't want to be the goddess of something like I destroy. So like, for the irony, the irony, eggs. And it's our third ever guest, Kelsey. Kelsey, tell the listeners a skosh about yourself. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Kelsey Ehalt. I'm a master's student at Brandeis right now, um, and I'm going to go ahead and list the departments I'm in. It's just a lot of words, so get ready. But I'm in the, the joint program in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Those are two different departments, but they both have ands, which makes things confusing. But basically, I study ancient history uh, via texts right now. I do archaeology as well, but right now, since digging not really a thing because we shouldn't travel because there's a pandemic. Um, I'm really focusing on languages for my master's. Um, and then I also incorporate the, the gender study side of things into the equation. So I'm just looking at how gender functions in the ancient world and thinking about it from a not straight white man perspective, basically, because that's basically what all that's been published. And there's some better scholarship coming out now, but there's still some work to be done. So I'm doing what I can there. We do love all of that. And I'm Alana, and I tried to start an all-goddess religion when I was, like, eight. <laughs> It'll True story, like me and my talk. friend um, Kay, who is one of my, like, oldest friends in the whole world, um, they're going to get a shout-out a little bit later as well, because they sort of helped me in my research. We, like, tried to start a polytheistic all-goddess religion when we were, like, eight. We, like, had a list of goddesses that we wanted to name, and we, like, created little rituals a great time to be had everyone should have just a religion creation phase i think everyone absolutely we called it selenism because the main goddess was selene Haley is shaking her head at me and it's making me feel i love it ways. but also like <laughs> i feel like i was like writing fan fiction before i knew it was fan fiction while you simultaneously were making a religion so like i'm like not surprised that either of this happened <laughs> not surprised at all it's a true story it's a fun story we kept a lot of ash in bottles related to this religion that we were making ash out. from when you were like yeah like, that's the. <laughs> that's i don't think question. we still have it but like we had it for a while no no i don't where did you no, acquire it oh like burning? from like i don't remember no, that's a body. I think we just like burned paper or something and collected oh, that's not the ash. That's we played not with a exciting. lot of fire when I was, Kay and I, we played with a lot of fire. Yes. Um, I don't know yes. what to say. No, what you playing with don't fire. Know what to say. Wait, were you a Girl Scout too? No, I was a daisy for half an hour and then they wanted me to do all this like stupid, weird shit, like say my own name in a group of people. So that was a no-no for baby Alana. Alana said no, no to being a daisy. All right, so I'm going to talk about my girl Ishtar today. So Ishtar is the Akkadian name for the goddess of love and war. But the Sumerian version of her name is Inanna. So I might switch back and forth between Ishtar and Inanna. Um, but know that at, by the later period, they're the same person. There's some debate about whether Ishtar was a separate goddess who became then sort of like coagulated in with this earlier Inanna, 
or if Ishtar is just like a direct connection to Inanna. There's a debate about this. It's not quite clear. So I'll probably refer to it as, as Ishtar if I mess up and instead of Inanna, because I, I work with the later period stuff. So I don't really see Inanna too much. But anyway, so Ishtar, Inanna is the, the Mesopotamian goddess of love and war. And she's depicted in all kinds of different texts, but obviously we have the most interesting sort of goddess information about her from mythological texts. But she also shows up in legal texts because they're just invoking her to um, you know, validate decisions, things like that. And then people in this period, well, in Mesopotamia across all periods of history have personal gods. So she's invoked in sort of just letters too, if they're just like, hey, bud, I'm sending you this thing. You know, good luck, thanks, Ina or Ishtar, Inanna, like whatever. She's brought up a lot. But for today, I'm going to focus on a few of the mythological texts because I think that's where we get the most and interesting information about who she is as a character in the Mesopotamian religion. So the biggest story, or the, the story where she has the biggest role is um, the titles translated. There's not really a, t they don't always title um, these tablets, but it's translated as the descent of Inanna or Ishtar into the netherworld. Um, so I'm going to give you a little summary of what goes on in that story, which is, it's a fun one. I actually, this was one of the first things I, the actual, first actual texts I worked on translating in Akkadian, not just working out of the exercises in the book, but actually working with text. So I'm going to tell you, the, the Sumerian version is slightly longer and there are more details, so I'm going to tell you that version, and then I can tell you how the, the later Akkadian versions differ later. So here, Inanna, since this is Sumerian, she's deciding to go down to the netherworld, it's kind of conceived as like a cavern type thing underground. Um, so I guess I should go over Mesopotamian cosmogony first. So we have earth here, which is where, you know, humans and, and mortals live. And then above that is the heavens, which is pretty standard for what modern Abrahamic traditions follow as well. But then beneath the earth, we have the netherworld or underworld. In Sumerian, it's Kur. In Akkadian, it's Kurnugi. I'll just call it netherworld. And then between the netherworld and the earth, we have the Apsu, which is this sort of this underground water um, where things happen to, and that's where Anki lives. Um, and that's also, that plays a role in the creation story of Enuma Elish, where Tiamat, one of the primordial goddesses, who's the goddess of fresh water, either fresh water or salt water, I'm forgetting, she mixes with Apsu, um, which is either fresh water or salt water, whichever one she's not and they create the other gods from there. So the Apsu is really important because it's sort of the, the origin point of all of the gods within Mesopotamian, the, the Mesopotamian pantheon. And it's also where Enki lives and he's one of the um, head gods too. And we'll talk about him some more in the story because he plays a role. Okay, so uh, in the descent of Inanna, so she's going down to the underworld to visit her sister, Arishkagal, who is the goddess of the underworld. I'm forgetting what her name is in Sumerian. It might be still Arishkagal, but she's going down to visit Arishkagal because her husband, Arishkagal's husband, um, has died. So Inanna wants to go to his funeral. And before she goes down, she tells her assistant, it's translated as minister in the versions that I looked at, her minister, whose name is Ninshubur, Ninshubur, I'm not sure about the length of the vowels there, but Ninchabor is Inanna's like assistant. I'm imagining like, like a PA. Um, and so Inanna's like, okay, Ninchabor, like I'm going down. It's kind of dangerous to go. People don't really go down to the underworld. So if I'm not back in three days, 
go ask these gods for help. And she gives a list of gods. First is Enlil, and then Urim, Nana, and Enki. That's important later because she gives a list of four. And it's important that she gives a list of four because the first three don't help her. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. So uh, Ninshubor is like, okay, great. Have a good visit to the netherworld. And off Inanna goes. So Inanna goes down. She stopped by the gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper says, hold up. What are you doing here? And like, why are you here? And so Inanna says, oh, I'm visiting my sister because her husband died and I want to go to the funeral. And he's like, okay, um, let me go ask her. So he goes and asks Arishigal if it's okay. And Arishigal is concerned because before Inanna went down, she got these powers and the powers are manifest in physical objects. So she gets a ring that has some sort of special power and this lapis lazuli necklace that has a power. And these there's seven other, there's seven total things. So five other things that have powers. And so Arishkagal knows that Inanna brought these and she's concerned about them because there's a sort of non-trusting dynamic between them, even though they are sisters. So Inanna's like, okay, you can let her in, but close all seven gates and only open one at a time to let her in and each gate take one of her things. So she goes through, it, it's the same sort of structure throughout in the Sumerian, but she goes to one gate, they take her ring. She goes to the second gate, they take her hat or whatever and goes on for seven gates. And then she gets to the, the last gate, they let her in. And basically it was a trap. They, it's kind of confusing. The, the Sumerian is not really clear on what exactly happens, but I've, I've sent Alana the link to the translation that I looked at. And so you, you can read it too, if you want to see. That will be in our show notes at ladyhistorypod.tumblr.com. Yeah. yeah, so I, I used the version that the, um, the uh, electronic corpus of Sumerian literature version, which is, trans it's sort of, uh, it's a compilation of from different translations, but it's a pretty standard, not, not too fluffy interpretive translation. So I thought it was pretty good. But basically, so she gets to the last gate and then they start yelling at Inanna and then she turns into a corpse and they put her on a hook. I'm not exactly sure what the process of these things are. But I'm imagining like they're yelling at her and she just sort of like desiccates and like dries up and they like put her on a hook. The motivation isn't super clear. I think, and, so, and some of the tablet is broken. So there, we might be missing some of the context, of course. Um, and, you know, of course, like something important happens in a break. It, that's always the case. It's never something boring. So maybe there, there's some sort of other story um, and maybe it's orally transmitted, detailing the drama between Arishkal and Inanna. Maybe there's a, a more specific reason why Arishkal does not trust Inanna and therefore wants to take her powers and then trick her to stay in the netherworld. Anyway, so Inanna's dried up on a hook and then three days passed. And so Aninshubur, you know, being the, the, the loyal uh, personal assistant, uh, realizes three days have passed and Inanna's not back. So she's like, oh shit, I better go get help. So she goes to the first person that Inanna told her to ask for help from, Enlil. Enlil says, no, I'm not helping. And then uh, Ninshubur goes to Urim. Urim says, no, I'm not helping. And then Ninshubur goes to Nana. Nana says, no, I'm not helping. And then finally she goes to Enki, who in some versions of myths is Inanna's father. And in this version, he the wording is that he is her father, but you have to be careful with wording about like familial relations in Near Eastern texts because sometimes they're just using them to describe power dynamics, not actual biological relations. Um, so even though uh, Anki here is, you know, referring to 
Inanna as his daughter, it might just be a power dynamic thing rather than a biological relation. That's so that's not super clear. But in, in other versions of the story, he's also depicted as her father. So I think that's fair enough to to go for the narrative. But anyway, he's like, okay, fine, I'll help. What is Inanna doing? And so Ninshabor explains that she went down to the netherworld and is stuck. So Enki's like, okay, I have a plan. So he makes these two figures, and these are going to come up later because these figures are what I'm doing my thesis on. He takes dirt from his fingernail and he makes a, a Kurgaru, and um, in the Sumerian it's Galatura. In, in later Akkadian it's just Galu. But these two figures, and I'll explain a little bit more later when I talk about what I'm doing for my thesis, there's some interesting gender performance things going on with these figures. Um, but right now I'll just leave them as helpers that Enki makes from dirt from under his fingernail. And he gives one of them a, a plant and he gives one of them water. And he's like, okay, go down to the netherworld and give, you're going to see a corpse and it's going to be confusing, but that corpse is your queen. So I, I love that saying, because he's like, you're going to see this dead body. So he knows what happened already, which I don't understand how that happened. But he's like, you're going to see this corpse, give her the water, give her the food and it'll be okay. You'll leave. So they go down, they give Inanna the, the water and the plant. And she, I assume like, somehow revives and I'm imagining like a sponge like they put the water on and I'm like like I said before like I'm imagining like the yelling like desiccated her so they're just sort of like she's like soaking up the water and so okay she's like okay I'm fine now so they start to leave and then these two demons stop them the group of three who are leaving so there's five of them now and they say well no one ever leaves the netherworld so you need to send someone to replace you and she's like okay who do you want and they're like we want your assistant and she's like, no, she's too loyal. And then they're like, we want your manicurist. And she's like, no, she's too good. And then they're like, what about your husband? And Inanna's like, okay, sure, I guess. There's so there's some other stories about her husband, Demuzi, that it was an arranged marriage too. So Inanna's like not too keen on her husband, Demuzi. But so anyway, so the demons go to take Demuzi and he's like, oh no, <laughs> I don't want to go to the netherworld. So he talks to his brother, Utu, who lives in the heavens. And he's like, Utu, turn my limbs into snakes so I can escape the demons. And Utu's like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And so he turns his limbs into snakes and he escapes the demons. And then the last part of the story is really fragmented. So I have no idea what's going on. Um, but apparently Demuzi escapes and then some other things happen. And then Inanna talks to a fly, like a bug, a fly, who says... I, I know where your husband is. We can go find him. And then apparently the fly helps her. It's broken, so it's hard to know. And then the story ends somewhere there. But that's the short sort of humorous version of the, the Sumerian version of Descent to Ishtar, or Inanna, rather. And then the Akkadian version is a lot shorter. It, it leaves out a lot of the details of... Um, it doesn't have the, the story afterward, after they leave the netherworld and the demons are trying to take someone back to replace Inanna. The Akkadian version doesn't have that. But one of the notable things about the Akkadian version, I think, and this sort of links into my, my master's thesis, which I'll get to in a second, is that when Ishtar, in this case, since we're talking about the Akkadian, is stuck in the netherworld, there's a whole series of lines repeated twice or three times where it's like all of the animals and humans aren't having sex anymore. <laughs> and things are bad. And so that's how they know that something's wrong with Ishtar. Instead of the, um, the assistant sending people down to help, other people realize that something's wrong, which I think is interesting. And then, you know, then she gets back and it's okay. But yeah, so um, to talk about my thesis a little bit. So 
I'm focusing on a couple different figures in the, the cult of Ishtar. The main one that I'm focusing on is the Asinu. Uh, the Asinu is the syllabic spelling of it in Akkadian, but there's also a logogram, um, which in Sumerian is sag or sag. That one's used sometimes, but the other one is um, or, mun, or munis, which is literally man, woman. Fun um, fact, sag in Farsi is dog. Oh, really? Yeah. In, in Sumerian, it's head or like top. Oh, that's fun. I was I ready for I you to be like wolf. No. No. It's, it's the same as Arabic, it's Kalb, um, Kalboom in Akkadian. But anyway, so I think there's definitely something going on interesting gender-wise with these figures. And so actually, I, I first came up with this thesis topic because I was reading The Descent of Ishtar in Akkadian, not the Sumerian version. Um, but my first semester of Akkadian and my uh, professor was a PhD student and we got to a part where, the part where in the Akkadian version, Ia instead of Anki makes an Asinu. And it's the word is Sinu in the Akkadian version, but it's Kurgaru and, and Gala in the Sumerian version. But these are all kind of related. I'm throwing words out. I'll explain the difference. And also the difference isn't super clear. So if you're confused between them, ev everyone is. <laughs> There's not a clear distinction between these roles that we've found in the, the textual evidence so far. But I was like, okay, what's an Asinu? Because I never heard that word before. That's not a common word in Akkadian. And he's like, oh, it's like a third gender person. And like that raised red flags in my gender studies brain. I'm like, okay, like whenever you categorize something as third gender without any other discussion, there's something interesting going on there. So I started reading some more about what people had written about the Asinu. And it turned out to be pretty gross because as we all know, being archaeology students and um, students of the ancient world, it's old white straight men, cis straight men, writing about basically everything. And so that's the case with uh, gender as well, unfortunately. And so in all these different translations of texts, the Asinu are translated from everything as like cultic prostitute to eunuch to impersonator, all these gross words that I think one, just really limit the conversation that you can have about gender in these figures because you're placing so many modern assumptions on them just with the single word that you're using. And two, especially words like eunuch and cultic prostitute, like there's no textual evidence to support these interpretations anyway. So it's all of this secondary scholarly interpretation being placed on these figures where, you know, there's not many textual instances of them. So it's hard to say what exactly is going on, but there's not, there's not specific evidence for castration or prostitution, for example. Uh, for my thesis, I'm basically going through and writing about how the word Vesinu and Korgaru and Galu and Kalu have been translated by scholars, and then going back and seeing like what can we figure out in terms of their gender performance from the actual textual evidence that we have, as opposed to just going to these simplistic interpretive labels. And my, and my proposition too at the end is to not translate words like that because any translation that we have is going to simplify the role of these figures. And I think just leaving it in the Akkadian leaves more room open for describing the, the things that they did and leaving it open because we don't know a lot about them and just, and just leaving that sort of gray area there instead of just labeling them one thing or another. But yeah, so that's what I'm working on for my thesis. And all of these figures are associated with Ishtar specifically. And I think there is something interesting there because of Ishtar's liminality herself, because she's the goddess of love and war. And those are two kind of opposite things. And her own gender performance is kind of 
somewhere in between this binary uh, because sometimes she's portrayed in, in cylinder seals and things with a beard and her her animal is a, a male lion or a, a lion with a mane at least I mean there are female lions with manes too and so I, I think Ishtar herself has some interesting gender things going on so it makes total sense that her cultic functionaries her cultic personnel also had some interesting gender things going on too so I'm just trying to figure out what exactly we can say about what's going on within her um, temple and <laughs> there's not a lot of evidence but just trying to figure out you know what's going on I love it I love your thesis like, my mind's that's blown. awesome I love oh. it yeah I really struggled to settle on a lady for this episode because I wanted to do something interesting, but I didn't want my lady to be from the same region as like another lady that was already being covered by one of you in this episode. And that's the regions you are familiar with are the regions I am familiar with because we had the same professors. So I had to branch out of my comfort zone and explore a person I had never explored. Well, a God I'd never explored because this is goddesses. So I did what any sensible person would do, and I reached out to my sister, sorority sister, for every, everyone who's been following along. And I would like to thank my sister Amber for suggesting this lady. It was a very good suggestion. So I'm talking today about Nuwa. Clarification, as always, I do not speak Chinese. So that's the best I, that it's gonna get, but it's probably not tonally correct, but do with that what you will. I speak Korean, not Chinese. Have and I been Jewish yet? Have we said Sprinkle Bear McPussum Boots yet? We got to get all three in the got episode. In. You got them in. Nuwa is the mother goddess of traditional Chinese mythology. So, you know, we know of a lot of other mythologies from other parts of the world. And there often is a mother figure, uh, you know, a matriarch of among the deities, if you know what I mean. So she's that, but in China. And her name is made up of two characters. Nu, which means woman, and Wa, which is a unique character that is only a part of her name. So that's how it distinguishes her from women in general. It's Nu Wa. And she is the sister and wife of emperor god Fushi. And Fushi is the god who created hunting and cooking, which is a fun combo, like hunt and cook, not vegan, but very relevant to each other. She is often depicted as a serpent. And it's her body is the figure of a serpent and she has a woman's head and she is capable of shape-shifting into anything she wants so she can change how she appears. And let me just say, she looks really dope. Like, what a vibe. Check out our Instagram. I'll probably put a picture there or Google her. But I'm obsessed with the different looks that she has. In some depictions, she's just drawn as a woman in traditional Chinese dress, which is Hanfu. And that's slightly less cool, but like, chill. And in the traditional Chinese creation story, Nuwa created humankind from the earth. And we see this in a lot of creation myths. If you know of creation myths from around the world, a lot of times like the physical earth or clay or dirt is related to the creation of humankind. So the story goes that one day she was walking through the woods and she found the woods to be so beautiful that she was sad that she couldn't share the beauty with others. She wanted someone else to enjoy the beauty of the earth. 
So she decided to create humans from the clay around the river. So she stopped at the riverbank. She picked up the clay and she's like, I can make humans out of this. And it is said that she made the aristocracy, like the aristocratic class from yellow clay from the riverbank and the lower classes were made from mud. And so Nuwa made the upper classes with her hands. She molded them, but her hands got tired. And so she picked up a rope and she dipped it in the mud. She swung it around over her head and the mud that dropped off became the lower classes. So there is a class distinction in this story. I assume it was at one point in history perpetuated by the upper classes to justify like the class divide in their society, but that that's how the story goes. And there's several versions of that story with varying details. So if you are curious to go explore it, there are texts about her written in Chinese and Vietnamese and a couple other Asian languages. So if you speak any of those and want to go read it, feel free. But that's the general basic things that seem to be true in every version of the story. She is credited with defeating the evil water god who is depicted as a black dragon and is named Gong Gong, which I love that name too. Like, I love the double, double syllable situation. It's like you could call pet that, but I guess not since he's an evil water god. Maybe it's not, not good luck to name your pet after him. Um, and Gong Gong, he ripped a hole in the sky when he was battling another god. It was the fire god. So the water and fire god were like, you know. That, that was not good podcast audio, but they were they were going at it. In the fire. How am I gun. supposed to transcribe that? Eh, noise. Eh, eh, some vowels and some H's. They were going at it and they were fighting. And they, Gong Gong ripped down one of the pillars, which is a mountain. He ripped it down and the sky got a big hole in it. This is a big problem because the sky protected the people from like crazy weather phenomenon. So like rain tsunami crazy kind of like crazy crap was happening in the sky and so she repaired the hole and saved the humans because she loved them because they were her creation and versions of this story also differ with one suggesting that she died of exhaustion because she was so tired because she had like held up the sky and put it back together um, but she'd saved humankind so it was like her last great feat and another version suggests that she could not repair the sky with just the materials she had. So she herself became stone and put the sky back together. So there's either the version of her dying of exhaustion or her actually becoming the material to repair the sky. Either way, this is her final story. So she sacrifices of herself to save humankind from Gong Gong's mistake. Wait, so with the second version where she is repairing the sky herself, is there like a, an astrological sort of connection to her then? Is there like a, a, a constellation representing her? That's a good question. No source I read specifically dictated that, particularly I think because she tends to be associated with the day. Mm -hmm. But I am unsure. There might be a constellation related to her that she's technically the goddess of marriage and fertility. Chinese religion has really changed over time. But despite that, Nuwa has remained an important figure to many people in China. There are many temples and shrines that are dedicated to her and preserved in her honor, including one that is seen as the ancestral shrine of all humanity. So she's very central in like the identity structure of China. And some women in China today pray to Nuwa for assistance in issues of fertility or marriage. So like if you want a husband, you're supposed to go and be like, Nuwa, give me a man. And if you want to have a baby, you're supposed to go to Nuwa and be like, Nuwa, birth me a son, so on and so forth. 
And in addition to her role in religion, she also features prominently in pop culture in China and other parts of Asia. She has been a character in three video games. So you can go play Nuwa. I don't know exactly how these video games work. I have not played them, but if that's your jam, Google it. And in numerous television shows and films, there's films that depict all the different stories surrounding her and other deities. So she factors into those stories too. And there have been film adaptations specifically of the sky fixing story. And on Earth Day in 2012, a statue of Nuwa created by a Chinese professor was revealed in Times Square as a representation of the importance of protecting the ozone layer because the theme of that year's Earth Day was the ozone layer. And so the ozone layer protects humans and is similar to the sky and Nuwa and her story. So the statue is of her holding up a piece of the sky, women holding a piece of the sky, and she's holding that up and that represents the ozone layer and the fact that we need to keep the ozone layer safe. So as you would give to Nuwa and worship Nuwa, you should worship and protect the ozone layer, so on and so forth. Very, very cool. And the statue was later moved to Vienna. And I've included in the further reading the transcript of the speech that was given when the statue was installed in Vienna, which is now where it lives forever. So it's really interesting if you're into that kind of thing. And also I will include the link to the Google Arts and Culture page that describes the statue. And you can learn more about the statue and, and what it's made of, if you like that kind of thing and what it looks like. I was having like a mental identity crisis with who I was gonna pick and I was on TikTok of course scrolling through like just for inspiration and I came on from my like for you page I think that's what it's called the youth call it a fun story about Danu and Tuatha Dedanan. I really okay so this is Irish mythology that we're doing a deep dive into and I asked Robert how to pronounce these and of course I forgot so in Irish mythology, Danu meaning the flowing one or the divine one who brings all things into being is associated with both masculine and feminine things, which was like right on. However, every time I pick, like, I couldn't decipher or like discern whether she was representation. So like if you looked at her while she had her pronouns or assuming from scholars now she, her pronouns if she would represent both masculine and feminine, or if she is just associated with because she's the divine one who brings all things into being. Because when you look at her, it's, I put a lot of in the further reading, but I used a lot of YouTube videos of people who are like kind of amateur experts in this, certainly not myself. And a lot of the representation that they put up were very feminine goddess-like like very nature-esque, flowing long hair, flowing skirts and dresses, or sometimes like a warrior, but really like honing in on that feminine side. And that's just my tangent. So she's also like the earth goddess of fertility and growth, abundance, agriculture, as well as intellect, change, and wisdom, and a whole host of others. Um, She just does it all apparently. She's also like the hypothetical mother goddess of the Tutha Dedanan, which is what I'm also going to talk about. But before that, because this 
group of people, the Tulatha Dedanan, which is an is old Irish for the people of the goddess of Daniel, and the Anya, the A and AI within the name means wealth. And that's kind of strange because this when I'm reading Daniel is D-A-N-U. And that's not found in any like medieval and Irish text, which was kind of like a point in time where people are like, okay, it's not in this period and afterwards type of situation. That goes for a lot of her myths and legends. And if you let me nerd out for a sec, let's go into some etymology of the name Daniel. Scholars believe that the name Danu is the nominative form and the genitive form is Danan, spelled as like D-A-N-A-N-N or D-O-N-A-N-D or D-A-N-A-N-D, which is seen in the primary sources. That's also how the name Tuatha de Danan is spelled. It's the D-A-N-A-N-D. A-N-N, the genitive form of Daniel. Again, with these people, they are the people of the goddess of Daniel. And this is the story that I'm actually going to focus on because spoiler, it's great. And it's also one of the most well-known sources. Just if you like do a Google search, this is the one that keeps popping up with her. And it's about how basically Ireland, Ireland was kind of populated. So opening our book to a short story, while there are a bunch of little stories like within this one story, I'm kind of like lumping it all up. And in Irish mythology, Tuatha de Danann were the first people or tribe in Ireland. Since they're supernatural and they're not necessarily human, but they are human, the way they arrived to Ireland was like via dark clouds and mist, which also gets strange because they landed on Connacht. Am I saying that right, Alana? Connacht. Connacht. C-O-N-N-A-C-H-T? Um, yes. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is on the west side of Ireland. And it this is, is where, where gets... throwback to episode two, that is around where Gronya Nimoyla was born and lived and did her piratey thing. Exactly. So this is like why it gets weird. Why I say it's like they arrive via dark clouds and mist because they also had boats. So... When I was first reading this, I was expecting like people coming out of like darkness and clouds because clouds are in the sky. But I think now like boats come along with it. So there might be spaceship boats or like water boats. But like in Treasure Planet. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. The aliens brought boats down and no. created the no, Irish no, 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 people. No, no, no. no. Treasure Planet. No. Treasure Planet is the analogy that we are going with. Treasure Planet. Yes. And when they arrived, they supposedly burned the boats hence forcing them to settle in the land they like docked, which made little to no sense tentacles because you literally like, again, rode in like a cloud of mist. And also I want to know when they settled and they were like, okay, we have food, water, shelter, let's burn the boats. And that's fine. That's a great tradition. I'm not like saying over the tradition, but like, what if like, if it was immediate, how did you know that was like a suitable habitat? Because like, wouldn't you say, oh, we don't have like one of the three basic needs, four or five basic needs that we need. Let's get back on our boats and travel around. These are also supernatural beings and I'm just overanalyzing mythology. It's what I do. Also, once they were settled, so like post-burning boats, I guess, um, it was said that they stayed there for centuries. And for the archaeologists and all of us here, 
part of the myth that is the ring forts are also called like the fairy forts. Alana is making a face. And that's because the- I dug a ring fort. Connection to you and Susan. Probably Susan, why I know this story. So- This is the, the Susan Johnston appreciation episode part two. I actually have a book that she gave me right next to me on my desk. I have my library background. Anywho, the fairy forts are like often called fairy forts because the tooth, Tuatha de Danann use them as portals to another like world. And side note, if a human were to happen across a portal, they would be forced to dance until they went mad. Honestly, that's just like, I read that and it was also kind of like- What a way to go. Exactly. It wouldn't take very long for me. Like, you know, 20 minutes, I'm gone. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I was like, I can dance through like one album of ABBA, but like if we get into an album of the Beatles, I might like cease to exist. I hate the Beatles. Famously, I hate the Beatles. Rude. And then she's on a podcast with like one of the best Beatles lovers ever, uh, Lexi right there. And then I'm I like I hate a- the Beatles. I think they're overrated. I think it's just like mediocre white men getting more credit than they deserve. Well, Sergeant Pepper takes your note and kindly throws it out. <laughs> the he bird. Took a nice, he took a nice poop on it. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Whatever. Okay. So back to my story because it's about me right now. Whew. We all went mad. And then lastly, this is my last note. So when the Celts invaded, the legend goes that they all turned themselves into fairies, hence fairy forts. And then they keep watch over the land. That's them. That's Daniel. What's the, I don't know if you know this and maybe I, maybe there's not an answer, but what's the significance between fairies and circle around things? Like when I think of like, like I know about ring forts, I didn't realize that there was connection to fairy forts, but then like when you think of like fairy circles, like yeah mushrooms like that's also a circle thing on the ground is that so a bigger the circle or? is like the portal oh, oh and the right. reason okay. why it's called fairies is that they the legend says they turned into fairies so it's oh, like okay. fairy forts that's their fort that makes sense. um that's that's the most i can tell you i'm sure there's more there are a lot of youtubers out there also circles is magic yeah it's magic <laughs> I'm talking about Persephone. This is a Greek theological figure, ancient Greek. I identify with her very strongly because I also contain multitudes. Um, There is a poem by Nicole McElhaney, who is the author of A Sisterhood of Thorns and Vengeance, a book that apparently just like does not exist because I cannot find it in print anywhere. Um, But the poem goes, do not worry about your contradictions. Persephone is both floral maiden and queen of death. You two can be both. And I love that. But apparently, like, the book doesn't exist. Nicole McElhaney has a couple of other poetry books with really interesting, cool names, similar to A Sisterhood of Thorns and Vengeance. She is also known as Proserpina in Rome and also known as Cora or Core, uh, which means maiden. And she becomes Persephone when she is, like, queen of the underworld, which we will get to. The stuff that you might know because of the Percy Jackson series. So in Homer's hymn to Demeter, Homer's hymn to Demeter is kind of the primary source we have for the story of Persephone being taken to the underworld. Homer describes her as 
slim ankled, which my friend Kay, shout out Kay, who I brought up earlier, we tried to make a religion together. They are an expert in classical literature. And they said that that probably meant like graceful or delicate or something along those lines. So the story is Hades saw her in a field, abducted her and took her to the underworld and like made her his queen and something about pomegranate seeds that he force fed her. Only one in the in the um, in Homer's hymn, it's only like one seed. You hear it like three or six other places, but in Homer, it's just one. Here's what you might not know about that myth, according to Homer. Hades had Zeus's permission to do this, but not Demeter, who is Persephone's mother. And Demeter goes searching all over, like the whole world for Persephone. And everyone saw what happened, like the sun god saw what happened and was like, yeah, we're not going to help you because like basically they said she could do a lot worse as far as a a husband goes. She's like queen of the underworld right now. I think like that's a pretty good deal. You know, Hades isn't going cheating on his wife like someone we know, Zeus. But according to Homer, one pomegranate seed meant three months in the underworld. Anyway, Persephone, this is a really short story. I'm sorry. Persephone. She is part of the agrarian triad, uh, which is a group of three agricultural slash harvest deities with Demeter and a god called Triptolemus. Lexi would call this an agricultural thruple. That's an excellent point. I don't think there is any evidence for that, but I do like the idea of it being a thruple. So Persephone as queen of the underworld kind of gives a more pleasant face to the concept of death and the afterlife. So it kind of like helps Hades' reputation and there's not as much stigma about it because yeah, you're dying, but look, the goddess of spring is also queen of the underworld. So that's pretty cool. Now I'm going to cede the rest of my time to modern reinterpretations that are all written by women or some other marginalized group. The only one whose like gender I don't know is married to a man and cis straight men don't marry other men by definition. So this person is marginalized in some other way. I don't know if they know that, but it's a really cool story. So first of all, Hades Town. Wow. Anais Mitchell. It's beautiful. It's jazzy. It's so much fun. It's Hades and Persephone, but they've like fallen out of love after so long. And also the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice is in there. I want a live recording of it. It's a Broadway show. I want a live recording of it the way that Hamilton has been. Uh, I think that is what we deserve. There is also a couple of web comics. The first one is Punderworld, which has a very, why are you shaking your head, Kelsey? Such a bad pun. It has pun in the word. And it's a bad pun. It has pun in the word. It's a very realistic art style. There are not a ton of episodes. Uh, One of them made the rounds on Tumblr a while ago, if you were still there. And it takes place in a more realistic, like ancient Greek, Olympian kind of setting. Links to the web comics, by the way, will be in further learning, which is what I've been calling it lately because it's not always reading. The other one is called Laura Olympus. There are a lot of episodes of this one. Uh, It is more whimsical, but also somehow grittier. Like all the characters are kind of color-coded. Athena has a very androgynous, ace, butch lesbian vibe, like someone else in the Zoom right now. So it's like Olympus is a modern city, but the mortal realm is still in ancient Greece. It's really cool. I was up until 5 a.m. last night reading it because I just like gave up and was like, I I just have to read this. Shout out to my friend M who told me about those web comics. 
also Madeline Miller, who wrote Circe, which was an incredible book, and Song of Achilles, which I haven't read yet, wrote a really cool piece about Persephone several years ago that basically ends with, if Madeline Miller were Persephone, we would always have winter because she loves pomegranates so much, and that is a mood. I love that you brought up Percy Jackson because it always bothers me that there are so many cool modern literary takes on a lot of these things, but that's the one that had to get famous? I'm rereading. I finished the Percy Jackson series. Forgot how much like I invested myself into it. I think I only read like the first book and like half of the second because I don't remember the third, fourth, and fifth. But I have the next series, which is like the Heroes of, of Olympus or something, and it yeah. incorporates the Roman. Mm, maybe. I think um, so. I think that's the next one. I read but. the first four Percy Jackson books in a weekend. And I would have read the fifth one in a weekend, but it was not out yet. I was a fan of them as a child. Oh, I was in like fourth grade. Yeah, probably yeah. fourth grade. But my mom decided I was still a fan of them. And for my 23rd birthday, I asked for a single ticket to go see Hamilton by myself. But for the same price, my mother bought four tickets to see Percy Jackson, the musical. Wait, Picture where? This. Where was it first? Was on it Broadway. In, I mean, a real Broadway. Like, they had, had Broadway? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Picture a 32-year-old gay twink dancing around the stage pretending to be a 12-year-old boy. That just sounds like the <laughs> Percy Jackson Lightning Thief movie. Yes. But with singing. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> no, but he was, okay, like, to be fair, Logan Lerman, because I- Oh, Logan Lerman man. is incredible. Incredible. Also, I won't spoil the, I mean, the musical's gone now it doesn't run anymore but in case they ever do another iteration and people want to see it I won't completely spoil it but it is written where there's only a cast of eight people but all the characters are covered by those eight people and so there are some weird interesting things where that really take you out of the story because like they have to do double duty as characters and all they do to change is like throw on a jacket and you're like is it just the first book yes and no, like how the movie was the first book, but like not, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not yeah, a yeah, truthful yeah. direct adaptation. The songs were like, when your dad's a god, your dad's a god. <laughs> <laughs> um, and okay, the one other on thing Spotify. I want to say about it is my brother and I had both read the books as kids and we're like, okay, we'll go see this. And it's like a family thing, whatever. During the intermission, a girl behind us who was probably maybe 14 or 15 would not shut up about Percy Jackson to her family. And my brother leaned in and was like, if we'd come here seven years ago, that would have been you. Um, And probably, I mean, probably, but shout out to that team who put that on. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Instagram at LadyHistoryPod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode will be on LadyHistoryPod.tumblr.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or tell your friends. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram at LexiBDraws. Our theme music is by me, GarageBand, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us, and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, she's going to blind us with some science. We're doing a deep dive into the women of 20th century science. We good. Amazing.